Hello and welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talked to Tristan Deneen, a community activist, the Communist Party candidate for Guelph in the 2015 general election, and the future Communist Party candidate for whenever the next federal election is. Now, why are we talking to the Communist Party candidate here before there's even been an election called? Well, on Monday, May 23rd in 1921, a small group of people gathered in a barn on the outskirts of Guelph to found the Communist Party of Canada. It was three years after the Russian Revolution, and there was already widespread concern about the spread of Marxist ideas, but economic stagnation, a global pandemic, and societal disillusionment post-World War I made people hungry for some kind of change to the status quo. It was a weird, wild century for the Communist Party, but a few dedicated Guelphites are trying to keep the tradition going to this day. Guelph's communist past, present, and future, question mark, is the topic of this week's Guelph Politicast. Earlier this year, Waterloo Region Record Arts and Leisure reporter Terry Pender wrote about the founding of the Communist Party of Canada. He put together a history of the day with access to files and reports from the RCMP that he procured through the Access to Information Act, and this is how he laid it out. On May 23, 1921, the setting was 257 Metcalf Street, now in the heart of Ward 2, but at the time it was on the boonies at the edge of town. According to Pender's article, there was a lookout on the roof pretending to be working on the chimney as guests arrived from around the country and indeed from Guelph itself. Guelph Alderman Lorne Cunningham was there, and so was Fred Farley, a stoker at the Guelph Gas Works and member of the Guelph Working Man's Association. Despite the secrecy, though, an undercover officer from the RCMP was also in attendance. A lot of people there at the founding of the Communist Party were already accustomed to being targeted by police, though, as well as being arrested for their political activism. In this early part of the 20th century, the concern was over such radical ideas as collective bargaining, the 40-hour work week, and universal health care, ideas that would become pillars of the post-World War II society, and were ironically considered signs of the advancement of Western democracies over communist rivals. Indeed, it's hard to separate communism from the atrocities of a Stalin or the anti-democratic actions of Castro or the still-growing authoritarian tendencies in modern China. It makes running as the Communist Party candidate hard in the handful of writings that their candidates do try to represent in federal and provincial elections. So, let's hear it from someone who's tried. This week on the Guelph Politicast, we're joined by Tristan Deneen, who will talk about why working with the Communist Party of Canada appealed to him, and why he's going to be running for it again in the next federal election. We will also talk about the misconceptions of the Communist Party, how people currently working with the party have to answer for the history, and how activists like Deneen are always trying to overcome that. And then finally, we will discuss Guelph's place in the history of the Communist Party, why it matters and whether there should be some form of official commemoration on this, the 100th anniversary of the party's founding. So I caught up with Tristan Deneen earlier this week via Zoom. So Tristan Deneen, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, no problem, Adam. It's good to be here. Uh, I want to start, I, I, don't want, I didn't actually want to start this way, but I figured get it out of the way and over with first. But I mean, when people think of communism, 
they think about and like people who aren't necessarily like into the theoretical ideas and all that but i mean right. just, just sort of like mainstream thought it's like castro it's stalin it's china it's you know the who was it it was executed on christmas day in romania trochescu like all all the famous <laughs> dictators right and that's a really hard place for people like you who are just, are, are just like have like solid socialist ideals and are, are trying to share them and like so before we get into sort of like i guess modern times you know how do you de- how, how do you you know uh cate- you know how do you qualify like th- that history of, of, right, of communism right. yeah because it, like it is a challenge right i mean we're dealing with a ideology which has kind of been cast as public enemy number one for a very long time right i mean we're even going back I mean, today we're going to talk about obviously the founding of the Communist Party 100 years ago and all that and what it means. Uh, but even going all the way back then, like before the Cold War, uh, you still had like people being criminalized for having this this kind of set of ideas and set of beliefs. Uh, you know, they could be charged with sedition and like there was no real like protection for their freedom of speech even at that time. Um, but but even going into like the 50s, you have McCarthyism, you have, uh, you know, all throughout the Cold War, you have various movies, in the 1980s, you have Red Dawn, you have like all the Invasion USA, all the propaganda is coming at you pretty hard, like whether it's like in your face or it's more subliminal. Um, so it, it's really understandable. And of course, like people, people really gravitate towards like faces, right? So of course, they're going to like associate the ideology with certain people, as opposed to like maybe with certain principles, mm-hmm. uh, so to speak. I mean, it's really easy to do that with just about anything. Um, but especially if you have like a wholesale campaign of demonization, right. Uh, that goes on, from, you know, by the powers that be who have a vested interest in making, making this look as bad as possible, um, you know, going back for a very long time. So it's, it's always a challenge pushing back against that. So you kind of have to like get into the history, get into like the concrete stuff that the party actually has done, whether that's engaged in like trade union struggles, anti-war movements, uh, struggles for LGBTQ rights or women's rights or any of these things which really do connect with people, which, you know, connect with people's daily lives. And, um, and yeah, this is the main, the main thing that, uh, you know, you, you look at, you look at all the things that we've done over like the many, many decades we've been active and it, uh, kind of, you know, people might actually be surprised by how like that contrasts with say the, uh, the picture they might've had the preconceived, uh, notions that they might've had about what a communist is or what a communist does. Uh, because ultimately we're really fighting for uh, uh, a society where people come before profits, not the other way around. And uh, I think that's something that, especially now um, in the wake of, you know, depression and like the way the pandemic has been handled and all this sort of stuff, this is really resonating with people a lot. And well, it's one of the reasons why the communist party is getting so many new members or people interested in joining uh, these days. Like I've, mm-hmm. I've really noticed that like it's way more than I've seen. Uh, well, since anyway. Right. Just looking at current conditions, you know, there's a global pandemic, there's economic stagnation, there's uh, people who just like have a general sense that the status quo isn't working, that, you know, traditional power structures need to be upset. And, you know, what does that sound like? Well, that kind of sounds like 1921 <laughs> and, and the conditions that right. the, the Communist Party of Canada was founded in. Sure. Right. I mean, uh, the, the parallels are there. I mean, we see these kind of like, well, Capitalism is a very uh, crisis, um, you know, you could say oriented or like crisis prone system. I mean, it's it, it happens on a regular basis. 
Um, you know, the system, of course, basically, you know, you might call it like creative destruction or whatever you want to call it, basically just implodes at various intervals. And like, you know, working class people are the ones who suffer from that. Um, you know, they're the ones who can't get work. They're the ones who like uh, lose their benefits. They're the ones who just, uh, yeah, they, they basically can't, are fighting to stay afloat. And that's like very, very apparent now. I mean, like you could say it's more unique now because uh, the factor of disease is involved. And stuff and lockdowns disproportionately affecting working class people and what they can do and how much they can earn and all this sort of thing. But um, then again, we also did have the Spanish flu pandemic <laughs> in 1918, 1919. I was like, what is that going to do to working people? Like we, we've seen this kind of stuff before. I've seen like many, many articles drawing a parallel. Of course, maybe it's not an exact comparison because obviously the situation was very different back then. I mean, could you even say Canada even had a healthcare system at all? Mm when that hit this country and like mm-hmm. as, as underfunded as maybe the system is today and like lackluster, it still is able to kind of, you know, do something <laughs> to handle the, uh, the current conditions. Well, back then, like, you know, what did you have? You had just a hodgepodge of like privately owned hospitals, privately, uh, you know, private practitioners, this kind of thing. You didn't really have a system. So it's like, and that was one of the things the communist party is, as fought for traditionally, you know, like in its early years going up, you know, like right to today, we're fighting to basically uh, make sure that the public health system stays public and is reinforced and entrenched and made better, mm-hmm. not defunded. You mentioned that the party has seen a, a spike in membership. And I, I've heard some people talk about this as sort of like a, mm-hmm. a negative way in, in terms of getting back to that history we're talking about. And, you know, of course, young people today have no, frame of reference for the cold war it's something that happened in the history books um so you know they don't appreciate you know people living through duck and cover and (laughs) the clash of civilizations and things but i mean in so much as you know a lot of people you know have in their heads a certain shall we say view of of the communist party the fact that a lot of so many young people are finding it appealing speaks to a certain disillusionment about about society at large now right it's it's you know a lot of young people are seeing a future that's you know not so much filled with possibility but you know filled with obligation and debt and and that worries them and Mm. they 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 respond (laughs) yeah like in the sense like you're you're dealing with a situation of deep insecurity that Mm. a lot of people especially young people i mean are dealing with right now like whether that's when it comes to jobs or comes to student debt uh, whether public services are going to be there, uh, you know, for them or for those they love. Uh, it's, it's a lot of things. And then, of course, like you add things like the climate crisis, you add things like COVID, you add all this stuff together. It's like it does present a very bleak picture. And it's very understandable that a lot of people's view of the world is pretty pessimistic right now because uh, they just don't see those kind of possibilities. There's, no, there's none of those kind of guarantees that say their, their parents might have had. Mm. or uh or those um you know the grandparents might have had in some cases i mean because we're, we're talking like millennia- millennials here um but it's it's a really challenging thing and like they they're understanding now that they pretty much have to fight for things that maybe previous generations took for granted and um and they're starting to look for ways to do that and there's like uh you know there's various answers out there in terms of things they can look to uh we're we're definitely maybe the one that's been around the longest you know, going back to 1921 and all that, one of the oldest political parties in, in Canada. 
but I think just it's it's the consistency with which we've we've done this. We've uh, we've kind of fought for these things, fought for like uh, public services, fought for uh, people having access to a job, you know, like decent wages, uh, you know, public public education, you know, debt free public education, you know, this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Everybody having access to that, uh, whether that's healthcare. This stuff is very immediate concerns to so many people, and um, you know, and on top of that, you know, you have like a you know, issues like Palestine or issues like uh, um, the rights of, of migrants or the rights of, um, you know, like all these different different concerns that that various people have, like fighting for justice for their own communities, for their, for their own nations in the case of uh, indigenous people. Uh, this is something we have a, a long record of, of doing, of standing in solidarity with those people who are struggling. So all these things kind of come together. And I think that's why um, maybe people are starting to get interested in us uh, in particular. So, and I'm, you know, I gotta say, I'm proud of that. Like there's, there's a whole history there. Maybe a lot of, maybe not so many people know that history, but it does exist. Right. Let's talk about that history a little because um, we're recording on Tuesday. Yesterday was Monday, which was actually the formal 100th anniversary of the founding of the party. Uh, You go down Metcalf street now. I mean, the house, we were talking about this before the house is still there, but you know, perhaps, There's no, <laughs> it's, it's something that the neighbors talk about, but it's not necessarily something that is sort of widely known. And, and granted, it's, pi- mm. it's, it's private property and somebody owns it and perhaps doesn't want to make it uh, a national <laughs> landmark. But I mean, it, should there be some, do you think there should be some sort of formal commemoration, like maybe a plaque or something, you know, that says, like, do you think yeah. that, there, that we need to recognize that in some way? Um, I would say I would say so. And this is something the party's actually been talking about for a while now is perhaps getting a plaque, if not that the exact site, maybe somewhere close by at least to, to commemorate this. We've kind of been looking into maybe how that would, how we would go about that. Like, uh, you know, the authorities to contact, how much money that would cost um, all this sort of thing. But because it, it is, you know, it's, it's a cliche term, like a heritage kind of site, this sort of thing, but like it, like it, it basically is, I mean, we're talking like a, a piece of history, local history uh, that had an impact around the country. Um, you know, this is something that really does, uh, you could say, put Guelph on the map, mm. like to a large extent. I mean, mm-hmm. it is a very significant thing which took place there as, as, you know, as secretive as it was back then. I mean, it was a very clandestine kind of um, meeting, although it was it was infiltrated by the RCMP at the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and all that. And they, of course, managed to get like a, a copy of the six-page manifesto that came out of it. Uh, that was supposed to be that was supposed to be secret, but you know, even back then, you know, there was there was official infiltration going on, uh, and uh, you know, and, and spying was going on, and and this sort of thing. So that's nothing new, um, but it was it's definitely something I think that that uh, really should be commemorated because, of course, like the Communist Party has had a major impact on various movements in this country. It's been a part of so many different struggles and uh, as has played a role as best it could. Like even at times when. You could say it wasn't so strong or it was banned. Like during the Second World War, it was banned, had to operate under a different name. And uh, there were various times where it had to exist as an underground organization. And then, of course, there was the in the 1990s, there was a major uh, decline in membership and stuff after the Cold War. And uh, and, uh, you know, there was a split in the party and there was it was a really problematic time. But still, the party pulled through. So it's once again, commemorating this kind of this kind of history and all the various histories it's connected to Mm -hmm. i think a lot of people would observe like well 
it's it's a small party and mm. you know it's communism and but i mean it was so important that as you said the rcmp were there in in disguise <laughs> you know that clearly there was it was a matter of some import at the time and and i guess because we were talking about this art this article from the waterloo region record and the the the, the author who based a lot of his the story he laid out of how the party was founded was from records he accessed through the the access to information the freedom to freedom of information legislation and so this isn't something you can just like go to the library and look up that you you have to it's not special access because anyone can file an atip but it, it, it you you have to take that significant step of actually filing paperwork to get the story which yeah i i think is part of the problem right yeah i mean that says something right there right i mean like 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 what does that say like even after all this time we don't even know the name of the uh, rcmp sergeant who was the infiltrator that's still like mm-hmm. that information is still under wraps yeah and he's 100 long gone. years later yeah he's long gone it's <laughs> um and and i think that you'd be hard-pressed to to say that there'd be any kind of a retaliation against him i don't think that's something that would be very likely (laughs) or his family Uh, (laughs) you know his great grandchildren (laughs) yeah but it's interesting like to see these kind of things which are still classified right like it's like well well why what is there to hide like Mm. all this time later and uh you know this is i mean this is this is like you could talk like a lot of things like um like in canada and the in the u.s and a lot of different countries are classified like you know say a hundred years after after the fact or even even longer in some cases like it's a there's a whole history there like when you're doing classified documents and you're just like what is so <laughs> what needs to be kept so secret after all this time like really what like what went on like mm-hmm. that's so sensitive mm-hmm. that you're still afraid of it getting out now like to this day i mean you're still paranoid or the uh you think this this would be too damaging mm-hmm. right so yeah, like there, there is definitely some unanswered questions about like the what the RCMP did back then, and of course it's worth pointing out that the RCMP was only founded in in its present form anyway. It was only founded in 1920, right? You know, the merger of like the Northwest Mounted Police and I think it was the Dominion uh, Police. I think they were the ones who came together in 1920, and of course this is in the wake of the Winnipeg General Strike and a lot of the other major upsurges in labor uh, struggles that were going on at the time. And it's really no coincidence that, okay, the powers that be decide to form a new uh, security arm at this time with like expanded powers of surveillance and they can infiltrate people and they can uh, have all these new powers. And of course, it's also in the wake of the, uh, the revolution, the, uh, the Bolshevik revolution of 1917. All these things kind of come together and this is kind of like the state's response in, in Canada and to expand sedition laws and like, you know, you can get arrested for even having like a... Um, at that time, the Socialist Party, uh, like pin, if you wore that anywhere, you could get arrested if you went to a meeting and uh, certain languages like the Russian language were being used in that meeting. You could get arrested for that, um, like a membership in a, in a very long list of banned organizations. You know, the Communist Party being one of them, mm-hmm. like as soon as it was founded, basically, it was still it was considered seditious. So it's it's like at that time, I think a lot of people maybe today. Uh, might not really be conscious of, of just where, where this country was in the 1920s. Uh, of course, it was a very different place back then. I mean, it was still like, you know, like a British dominion, um, many more features of like, say, colonial government and stuff like that existed at the time. Uh, the British flag was everywhere. 
uh, everybody's saying God save the queen, you know, like all this sort of stuff was, was the case back then. And a lot of things were, were considered seditious. I mean, mm. you didn't have the free protections of like the charter rights or freedoms of speech, the kind of things that we say have today, which we still actually have to fight for today. But back then you didn't even have any of that stuff on the books. Yeah. So it was, it was quite a, uh, it was an uphill battle like to, to oppose those things. And I would point out to, you know, labor unions in particular were seen as kind of like a gateway drug to more, um, <laughs> you know, more, uh, right. more seditious organizations like, you know, uh, like the Communist Party, um, mm -hmm. like the Socialist Party. But, you know, what was what were labor unions fighting for at the time in the 1920s? What kind of well, things were labor unions fighting for? <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, I mean, they were just like fighting. Uh, geez, was the struggle. I think the struggle was still on for the eight hour day at that time. Mm -hmm. you know like the struggle was still on for the eight hour day it was still like on for uh, the 40 hour work week i mean it was still on for like uh just basic protections in the workplace you know mm -hmm. safety standards you know like all like you know decent pay all this kind of stuff like was was like just like a you know well you want to talk living wage now i mean people are still fighting for living wages now but they de they were fighting for that back then as well uh and uh, of course this is long before like healthcare was like a guaranteed right this was like before any of this um uh, like, you know, you want to talk like access to like, edu like higher education or any of this stuff. I mean, that didn't exist for people back then. Like all these things were won through the union movement in, um, in many cases, like labor struggles and like mass mobilizations and general strikes and all this stuff. This is why there's such a big history of that at that time. Like, like Winnipeg wasn't the only general strike there was. I mean, there was general strikes in Vancouver. There was like strikes in like virtually every corner of the country. Mm hmm that took place back then and it was uh, it was an ongoing thing like you had to there was still you know struggling in the 1920s and the 30s uh major labor actions in canada just like there was in the in the states with like sit down strikes and occupations of factories and and all this sort of thing and um and people fighting through the great depression right mm -hmm. struggling to survive uh pushing back against say the work camps that were originally the canadian government's response and just shipping people out into the middle of nowhere to cut wood or something and you just have like these uh uh, these people out there almost in like an in internal exile, you might say. And they, they're trying to like do that. And like, you know, then you have the on to Ottawa trek and, and all the various actions which took place, uh, place then. So it's, it's a, like, once again, this is a, an incredible history that does not get talked about a lot. It doesn't get talked about a lot in school. It doesn't show up in the media very much. Uh, I guess there's a movie about to come out on the Winnipeg general strike, which is, mm. uh, I don't know how that's going to be, but I mean, it's kind of long overdue that that gets some serious screen time because it, it normally does not like, I mean, I didn't learn about that in school. Like I didn't get that in civics class uh, in Canadian history. There was a, maybe a little bit of mention about it, but overall not very much. And of course, like, uh, yeah, no mention of the founding of the communist party in Guelph, even though, you know, I went to school in Guelph. Mm -hmm. But I mean, again, that kind of comes back to the elephant in the room that, you know, it was the, the, you know, the evil empire to quote one mm -hmm. U.S. president, mm -hmm. uh, you know, even today, you know, you have right wing politicians, you know, put the emphasis. They don't just say China. They say communist China or Chinese <laughs> Communist Party, just, you know, as, as if Xi Jinping wasn't going to be a dictator if China wasn't communist, that, you know, the dictatorship tendencies aren't necessarily communist tendencies. And I mean, that's that's probably something you here you get a lot on the campaign trail being a, a communist party candidate well like in 2015 like when i this is the last i mean uh, yeah i'm uh 
uh, planning on running in the, uh, the upcoming federal election, whenever, whenever that's going to be this year, I mean, <laughs> probably in the fall at this point, but in 2015, I mean, there was honestly not as much as I, w- I expected, like uh, kind of mm. pushback on with regard to that. There was, there wasn't too much. It happened a few times, but overall, and, and, and it happened mainly from like older generation folks, um, you know, who were definitely identifying very much with the cold war kind of ideology and maybe were immersed in that when they were growing up, but it didn't happen as much as I thought it would, uh, which is, is very, um, very interesting. And, and I think uh, largely it's because, well, of course, like, what are we focused on? We're not focused on, um, you know, we're focused on the immediate needs that people actually have. And we're, we're very clear on, uh, on this in terms of what we, uh, what we speak. And of course, we are proud of our history in terms of like, our, especially with our solidarity with uh, say like Cuba or Vietnam or these, these various countries which have long been say the targets of um, well, not only demonization, but like in a lot of cases outright invasion and occupation and uh, devastation by the United States and its allies. And of course the, the blockade against Cuba is ongoing right, like right now, like mm-hmm. in terms of like choking off uh trade to that country and stuff. I mean, I, I actually have seen figures like that, uh, that have, have stated if, if that blockade was not actually in place, uh, Cuban, li- Cuban living standards would be on par with, uh, Western Europe mm. at this time. Like, it's like, that was kind of the impact that that, that had. And if you look at the human development and the healthcare system and the fact that they just came out with like, I think they had like three different COVID vaccines being manufactured now in Cuba that were indigenously produced. And whatnot. That's uh, pretty remarkable achievement for like a, a small island with a legacy, this long legacy of like uh, colonialism and like throwing off the shackles of colonialism, originally Spanish colonialism, and then American domination. It really is inspiring. So that's not obviously not something we're we're ashamed of, like of of this uh, this whole history that we have of standing with other uh, socialist countries. Mm. Um, and one of the things we have done a lot of is of course what we have to is is push back against some of the uh propaganda and distortions that have uh, that have gone on and really kind of poisoned maybe the uh, reputation the communists had and uh you have to remember like the labor movement was effectively purged of communists in the 1950s um like because of like the various laws that were passed at that time under mccarthyism so all those people all those communists and socialists who played such a major role in building the labor movement struggling for uh, these these various rights, labor rights, uh, you know, eight hour work day, 40 hour work week, all this stuff that that was won at terrible cost in some cases. Uh, all those people were just like uh, kicked to the curb. Mm. And. Like and this is not just like a communist perspective, I mean, a lot of people have traced the decline of the uh, the union movement. I mean, you know, very scholars, um, you know, economists have traced the decline in the, the union movement to those purges, which took place in the 50s. And of course, the, you know, two decades later, you have the onset of neoliberalism and uh, further attacks on unions, which really bring us to today where like the rate of unionization is pretty abysmal, like in, in Canada and, and in, in the U.S. And that's it's going to take a take a lot of struggle to, to turn that around. But it's, it's not even just, you know, top down. Um, I mean, workers themselves were taught to kind of basically turn against unions yeah, um, yeah. At, at some point, too. Mm-hmm. 
you know, the, their their union bosses were greedy and they weren't looking out for them. And I mean, there's there, some degree of that was true. I mean, Jimmy Hoffa wasn't necessarily thinking about <laughs> <laughs> about about his members every day. Uh, no. uh, but but I mean, that's kind of that's another kind of worst case example uh, that, you know, the the movement kind of gets hamstrung with. Yeah. Like it comes from the top down, like, okay, maybe some of the bosses like are, are you know, like, I mean, yeah, you look at uh, some of the leaders right now. I mean, uh, in, in the States, like the AFL-CIO, uh, you had uh, Richard Trump kind of like uh, kind of shaking hands with Trump in some cases, right? Like in, in agreeing with some of his policies, which is pretty shameful, um, you know, and, and saying some racist things about Mexicans. And, uh, you know, we've had like some problems with Unifor kind mm. of adopting some of that kind of rhetoric in Canada. And that really is something that, that, really shoots the labor movement in the foot because of course that's not about internationalism, the solidarity cross borders that we really need, especially at a time like where globalization kind of like makes um, really requires that workers are in this together and like, uh, you know, form those kind of alliances. But yeah, when you have like the leadership that doesn't understand that and like maybe has been kind of been cozy with the bosses for a while and kind of co-opted politically by the democratic party or the, the liberals or whoever else, like, uh, wants to kind of cut deals with them. So, oh yeah, so they won't go on strike. They won't be militant and all this sort of stuff and uh, putting all these kind of fail safes in. And then of course, like the stuff they do disillusions, like the membership or the membership is being exposed to like, uh, you know, stuff in the news media that demonizes unions and stuff. Like, so like it goes both ways. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is one of the things that makes it so difficult, but there is a new generation of like, you know, younger workers who are pushing back against this uh, and trying to unionize the ununionized uh, people is trying to like, you know, unionize migrant farm workers even, right? I mean, these people are like deliberately kept outside the system so that they can be basically super exploited and like they've got to worry about being deported and they've got to worry about, uh, you know, all these legal ramifications uh, coming down on them if they, if they go against what their, their, their boss wants them to do. Or if they push for like higher wages or what have you. So this is the this is where the struggle really is right now, and it's it's inspiring to see that there are so many organizations engaged in this. There are movements around this, and we do at the Communist Party do stand with those movements and, and work with them and uh, try to advance them as much as we can. Well, there is a pivot point right now, right? And you kind of see this in the in in the U.S. with um, businesses, restaurants, mostly service industry places, basically desperate to hire people. Right. Um, and they're blaming, <laughs> you know, they're blaming enhanced unemployment benefits, but are perhaps not looking at, you know, the bottom line, it, you know, mm -hmm. a, a year after being at home, are, are these people perhaps appreciating a higher standard of living, living more flex time, more downtime, more benefits? That seems to, I mean, what, what's kind of happening right now is going to determine, you know, where kind of where the course of the labor, labor movement is going to go sort of in the immediate aftermath of, of the pandemic. And, and I right. guess, um, I mean, any publicity the communist party gets from, you know, and let's call it anniversary week here. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's maybe a good time to, I don't know, reset the party or make it more relevant again. I mean, is, do you have any thoughts about that? I was like, well, I wouldn't say, well, I wouldn't say we ever became irrelevant. I mean, right. as much as like, say the, uh, <laughs> the, maybe the, the dominant narrative maybe assumes that we are, mm -hmm. uh, because it wants to say like, okay, this is the end of history, like capitalism won, socialism lost and like end of story. Right. I mean, that was kind of the narrative in the nineties. That was when we were maybe at our lowest ebb. Um, but we really have bounced back from that. And I think it's, it, 
you know, it's really no surprise that uh, that we've bounced back from that, given all that's that's been happening, like in the world. Basically, everything that's happened since then, whether it's the Iraq War or the the Great Recession, or like uh, now the co- the ramifications of the COVID pan- COVID pandemic, where like I mean, you know, a lot of people are now risking losing their homes and uh, you know being kicked out because the rent moratorium, the moratorium on evictions is ending, mm-hmm. um, and uh, all the landlords want their money. Uh, this is, this basically proves like history basically just proves that we're still relevant. Mm. Uh, like, it's not so much like we, like, obviously maybe we need to get our message out there more in terms of like, you know, doing outreach and, and whatnot, like, like what I'm doing here today. Uh, but like, and, we, and there's obviously more to do when it comes to that, but when it comes to actually our, our concrete relevance and the relevance of our message, like the relevance that, that, uh, of the message of, uh, people before profits, uh, this is, this has never been honestly more relevant than, than right now. I, I mean, I would say. Mm. So, I mean, there's this um, commemoration coming up uh, this weekend. Yeah. Uh, can you talk a bit about what's involved with that? Is it uh, surprise guests, each one more surprising than the last? Uh, <laughs> and, and I mean, what role does does does, the, does you and the and the Guelph local party local Guelph party have in uh, in this? Given that you know this is this is the place where it happened. Yeah, I mean, like honestly, like I wish we had uh, maybe maybe a, maybe some more uh, uh, more airtime. But like honestly, this is like for all of us. Like this uh, this party. Uh, like this party gathering that we're going to have it's online. Of course, this is like going to have social distancing is still in a, in effect, obviously. So this is going to be um, on the 30th. So, so, you know, like, like a few days after the, uh, after the, the anniversary, really uh, at one it's going to be on uh, there's going to be, a, there's a whole Facebook event, which is, which you can find on Facebook. It's a uh, hundred years uh, communist party of Canada centenary centenary celebration. Mm-hmm. That's the uh, that's the the name of the Facebook event, but it is going to be on YouTube, and uh, you know the link is going to be available when uh, when that's up. But right now you can you can go to the uh, the event page on on uh, on Facebook if you want to check it out. And there's yeah there's going to be a lot of like there's going to be a lot of speakers. There's going to be music performances. There's going to be a lot that's going to be happening on Sunday afternoon. So definitely stay tuned for that, and uh, you know check it out if you can. Once again, I wish more of the like. I wish this stuff was in person, but <laughs> uh, that's like everybody kind of wishes more stuff was in person now. Yeah, in like well, a I long mean, slog. I mean, would that be? Would if that you know different circumstances? Would that be like, uh, you know, maybe a nice march from Market Square to Metcalf Street? I mean, that's kind of a hike now, but it you know, it, it's it's doable. It's doable. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, in 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 an alternative world where there is no covid you know this could have been like a really a really big moment to shine and not to bring like just naked naked politics into this but i mean you mentioned you are running again or you are going to be the candidate for the communist party uh whenever the next election happens um i mean talk about a great opportunity to launch a campaign yeah i mean it it definitely (laughs) would be right i mean that does kind of limit uh yeah there was definitely would be a much greater opportunity for some uh some visibility if that was the case right (laughs) but well such is such is the reality uh right now i mean i don't know i mean i mean it looks like infections are now declining uh like the 
the policies of the Ford government in particular have been pretty abysmal in terms of dealing with this. I mean, this a lot of this stuff could have been prevented mm. in terms of like the, the spike in infections that we saw this spring uh, and the kind of impact that's having if we'd actually gotten a grip on this earlier and like the whole sending everybody back to work without adequate protection and stuff. Like if that hadn't been the, um, the order of the day, because they once again, they want to protect profits over people. Uh, like a lot of people would still be like, well, still be alive mm. right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the overall death toll in this country is over 25,000. Like a big chunk of that is in Ontario. Like it's pretty, it's pretty despicable. Well, one Obviously, third, I think it's over 8,000. So it'd be about one. Third. Yeah. And, yeah. and that, uh, that could have been avoided. And, and that is going to be a topic in the election. Like, I mean, that needs to be talked about, especially if we talk about, like, say, the people who died in privatized long-term care homes, which, I mean, that did get talked about last year. I haven't seen it in the news at all this year. Mm-hmm. That was where the majority of people last year were, were just in terrible conditions of neglect. Uh, you know, elderly people basically just, uh, just dying in droves, like, from COVID last year. And, like, that, that's a crime. Like, mm-hmm. like. Basically, there needs to people need to be held to, to account for that, mm-hmm. and uh, but it's just it's not in the conversation anymore, and it needs to be. So obviously, that's something that uh, it's something I'm going to talk about in the uh, in the upcoming election uh, about the response to, the, to COVID and uh, just how basically how uh, basically yeah yeah just how horrible it was really, and uh, just <laughs> if there's any sort of issue that can drive home a lot of the a lot of these other points that I've made, like throughout this, this talk, I think it's, I think it's that like, it's so much stuff just came out of the woodwork. So many problems that just got, have been neglected and have not been solved or adequately uh, dealt with. Um, now here they are, you know, there's no, there's no denying them. Yeah. Before we wrap things up, I mean, it's been a hundred years. Um, what kind of future uh, do you see? Uh, for like even just like the ideas you're talking about I mean because at the end of the day the party itself has been a generator of some interesting ideas and I mean it kind of goes up the chain doesn't it It goes starts at like the far left groups gets processed further up by like whether it's the green party and then the NDP and then at some point the liberals adopt it and it becomes mainstream it's just you know so where, where does the party go from here do you think well, I mean, we're going to keep uh, developing in terms of our support for the labor movement, in terms of like the movement for migrant rights, in terms of uh, uh, struggle for LGBTQ uh, rights. I mean, women's rights, all this stuff, which is not we're far from being out of the woods on a lot of this stuff. I mean, this stuff still needs to be fought for and secured. I mean, there, even, there is no law, federal law in this country, securing abortion rights even. Mm. And that is something that the liberals have been really hypocritical on, haven't made a move on. The NDP hasn't made a move on that either. And this is something that really needs to change. Well, in fact, that's another thing that needs to come up during the, uh, the election, if you ask me. Uh, you know, there's so many things that still need to be done, you know, and this is, I think, where we can make the strongest contribution. And this is also the case when it comes to, like, say, even when it comes to the environment. I mean, the, the Greens have not cornered that by any means. I mean, they, they have a certain approach to things, mostly centered on business. Mm. And that is not an approach we think is going to be effective or, and it's not one we agree with. Uh, there really needs to be like, a, you know, it needs to be a public response. It needs to be a planned response, uh, you know, that retools really the entire economy uh, in a in a way that is going to counter climate change and uh, and ensure that everybody's that people's jobs are protected, that the people even have jobs. And that is going to be something that you cannot leave to the market. 
Mm-hmm. And, 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 and of course, this also has to be in conjunction with like the development of like, you know, the strengthening of public health care and public services. All this stuff needs to go hand in hand. It has to be a comprehensive approach. And it just seems to me that the other parties have a much more piecemeal kind of approach. They don't have a systemic approach. And, um, and this is, I think, where we can make the greatest contribution. We can really kind of turn the conversation around and, and just understand what needs to be done to have an effective response to all these things, which are really kind of besieging the, uh, you know, like, like the society right now that, that are really uh, so many elephants in the room <laughs> we have not dealt with. To you once again, use this metaphor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the people in like the, the people in power don't want to deal with because it's really hard. You know, it's really hard. They're worried that they're going to alienate people. Or they're worried about they're going to, you know, shoot themselves in the foot if they if they move too strong on a certain on some on a certain thing. They want to keep the, they keep things lukewarm, and uh, and really it's touch and go. And and we can't afford to do that. I think that's that like what it's what it's it's going to take for like, um, what the tipping point is going to be where the the vast majority of people are willing to kind of actively struggle for this. I'm not entirely sure what it's going to be, but I just know like thousands upon thousands of people are already mobilized, mobilizing and rallying around so many of these issues. And if we can like bring them all together and understand how all these things are connected and like, if, if we're going to get anywhere on any of these issues, we have to like combine them. And communists have never been worried about alienating people. Like, well, <laughs> there's, there's no, <laughs> you know, you gotta, you gotta struggle for what's uh, for what has to be done. Like we're struggling for like human needs, mm-hmm. right? Not corporate greed. And that's, uh, that's just something, obviously we're going to alienate people with that message, but the people we're going to alienate, frankly, that's, it's the people who have, um, have so much to lose right now. And they don't want like the, uh, the working class and oppressed people from like getting what they need. So we've got to, there's going to be a battle there. Yeah. (laughs) Inevitably. Well, we'll have to leave the battle there, but, Mm -hmm. uh, Tristan, thank you so much for all your time today and, uh, happy anniversary. No problem. And thank you very much, Adam. Thanks for having me. And once again, that was Tristan Deneen. The Communist Party of Canada will mark their 100th birthday in a virtual event that they're live streaming online at 1.30 p.m. this Sunday, May 30th. Just go to their YouTube channel at youtube.com slash cpcupdates. And you can read Terry Pinder's article about the founding of the Communist Party in Guelph at the Waterloo Region Records website, and you can find that link in the show notes page for this episode. And speaking of this episode, that is it for this edition of the Guelph Politicast. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. The Guelph Politicast is usually recorded at CFRU at the University Center on the University of Guelph campus, and to learn more about CFRU, go to cfru.ca. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can download it from the host at Podbean at guelphpoliticast.podbean.com. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you will get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can get in touch with me by email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. You can reach me through Twitter at adamadonaldson or at Guelph Politico. You can also find Guelph Politico on Facebook at facebook.com slash politicoguelph. And if you'd like to help build a locally sourced independent media outlet in the city of Guelph, please consider donating to Guelph Politico. And you can find out how at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. 
And for all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca, where we will have a new episode of the Politicast for you next week. And until then, we'll see you next time.